And before, before we end, because she'll kill me if I don't, I want to give the absolute biggest thank you I can give to my mom. She's been the most influential person in my life, and she's been such a huge help with this. You know, I want to give her all the credit in the world. She deserves it. Dude, that's awesome. I'm going to edit that and put that at the beginning of the podcast. I want everybody to hear that. Yeah. Thanks, Joan. I really appreciate it. Dude, you're getting me choked up over here. <laughs> Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. Today in the Lunker Dog Studios, I got Jonah, Jonah Basie. Now, it's a funny story how Jonah got in the Lunker Dog Studios because Jonah's sister, who grew up here in Fort Lauderdale, actually went to school with my sister. And she was watching some of the social media stuff and the environmental push that we were having here in Fort Lauderdale and across the state. And just so be it that her son, Jonah has a group called mangrove life, M A R M A N G R O life, mangrove life. Jonah, good, good to have you here in the longer dog studios. Thank you. It's great to be here. Jonah. Um, talk to us about, well, first of all, talk to us about you. You grew up here in Fort Lauderdale your whole life? Yeah, I was born in uh, upstate New York where my dad's family is. And when I was like one, we moved down here and I've lived down here for all for all my real practical life, you know? Uh-huh. You went through the school system here? Yeah, private school system, but yeah. yeah. And you were, were, uh, were you into the water as a kid? Oh, yeah, always. Always on the water? Yeah, we only recently moved into our house on the water. But for pretty much as long as I can remember, we've either been trying to rent boats down in the Keys, or when we finally got one, we were down there as much as we possibly could. So you just spent a lot of time in the Keys? Yeah. Did your mom tell you that um, she actually went to sea camp school with my sister? Yeah. Yeah, I actually went to sea camp myself. Really? It's wonderful there. I was wondering if sea camp was still going. What age did you go to sea camp? Oh, it might have it might have been like three, three years ago now. I think I was like 13. Is it about 13 years old? And what, now you're a junior in high school or a sophomore? Uh, junior in high school. Junior in high school. Yep. And you go to St. Thomas Aquinas High School? Yes. My alma mater. You know, my kid's going to Gibbons. Yeah. That was a little, like a little bit of a, a small issue in the family. <laughs> but I got to tell you, now that she's at Gibbons, it's kind of cool. I, yeah. Well, a lot of the people that, that I went to St. Thomas with, kids are going to Gibbons. And it kind of just feels like the same old thing, except for Gibbons. And... um to tell you the truth, living east of Federal Highway, I'd rather not have to go out to St. Thomas all the time if I could help it. Yeah, Gibbons is a lot closer to where I live, too. But my dad works at Aquinas. He manages the Vienna Center, which is like the theater across the street that the school owns. My mom's a teacher there. So Did, it makes way more sense for me to go there. Yeah, no, you're built in. You're built yeah, in. Yeah, right in. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Now, talk to us about Mangrove Life. How, how, how did you get that started and why did you get that started? And give us the background. Yeah. So right back during like the March, April area, uh, right at the start of the pandemic, we moved into a new house for our first house on the water, uh, you know, after being down here for years and years and years. And we had all the spare time on our hands. We're not going out anywhere. And the first thing that came to my mom's mind was to paddleboard because we already had like an inflatable paddleboard that we would take out to like, you know, Whiskey Creek. Mm -hmm. We would go down there and she would like just paddle up and down the creek. Right. And I would go with her sometimes. And, you know, we're finally on the water. We have these waterways we can access and we were both going out all the time and we sort of start to take notice you know there's a lot of like trash in the water yeah tons of trash no shortage of that yeah. and so you know pretty much from the start we were going out there and we would just like throw a bucket on the board with a net in it and we're mostly just enjoying being out there paddling and if we see something you know we'll scoop it up we'll put it in right 
and we start to notice these areas like at the ends of ends of like finger canals and stuff where a ton of trash is just like collected right so we'd have days where we would just go out there focus those areas get the trash out and then leave and that sort of eventually developed into this trash cleanup thing and we weren't officially registered with anything at that point we were just sort of the two of us just whenever we had the chance we would go out and in addition to sort of picking up trash we noticed a lot of mangrove propules just floating in the water and i know a ton about mangroves just from going up down here i i know the importance of you know what they can do to develop habitats for fish right we would be fishing in the keys all, t- all the time and the keys is probably the last place on earth at this point that has that many mangroves in some places you know well, the last place in the united states anyway. no, at the very least yeah and you know that's where you need to go you want to get kind of close you don't want to hit them obviously but you want to get kind of close cast your line out you're going to get something because that's where fish live yeah you know on top of that they have these benefits like fil- filtering water mangroves built on seawalls they can prevent like waves from really wrecking the wall so they have a lot a lot of benefits and at the time you know made sense to just plant them so we we gathered what we saw and we had them growing in tanks and pots and when they got sort of big enough to transplant them we moved them onto this little area right on our own seawall mm-hmm. so we have this little strip there where they've been growing for almost a year now and they're doing really well they're growing at a steady rate and the a mix of the collecting and growing mangroves and the trash cleanup developed into mangrove life and we became officially registered in October after about a month of just like planning it out, seeing what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, you know, almost every weekend I would have some of my friends from school. They would come in, they'd volunteer, and we'd do cleanups. Since October, we've collected 784 pounds of trash from the waterways. And on top of that, we have the mangroves growing in front of our house. And we have about 40, 45 growing in tanks and pots and stuff that we want to, you know, eventually get planted somewhere in the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we worked with city officials and city, you know, city people trying to just basically get permission to go out and do what is basically public service, you know, planting these mangroves. They have all these benefits and, you know, started in like late December talking to people. We got sent from person to person to person. And who, who was the first person you contacted? Like, did you just kind of like try to make sense of it? Like, hey, I'll contact my commissioner or whatever it may have been. Who'd you, who'd you try first? I don't think we went to a commission immediately. We checked the website and we just contacted like the environmental agency's head. And we were expecting at that point to be referred to someone, right. you know? Okay. And from there it was person to person, person. And we, <laughs> yeah. What do you mean person to person? How many people do you have to go through to Ooh. finally get somebody that would talk to you about planting mangroves? Off the top of my head, like four to six. And some of them were like two at a time, like in e- long email chains, like three people trying to figure out what to do. Do you feel like they were trying to get rid of you, like giving you the old government shuffle? Yeah, at the beginning, a ton. A ton, right? Yeah. They just, yeah, I, dude, I had, the, you know, I had the same things going on here in, uh, with the city of Fort Lauderdale. You know, you, you're supposed to contact your commissioner. He's part of, you know, the area that he's the commissioner of. So you want to contact him. And then you contact him and he tells you, oh, really, you need to talk to the city manager. City manager tells you you need to talk to somebody else. And it goes on and on and on. And it has to be, I don't know if they train them to do that. I was waiting for someone to give me a name I had already gotten to just (laughs) prove that it's just a circle that you're just going in. I call it a shell game, but. That's a good one. Yeah. So you're going through the government shuffle and you finally find the guy from. Uh, from City Wilton Manors, Todd De Jesus. I feel bad. I forgot what his position is right now. Like, not, I don't have it on my mind. But he's a, he, he seems like he legitimately is interested in the project because since our uh, in-person meeting with him back in February, like late February, he was actually he he showed an interest. You know, he, he seemed like he cared, and he took a tour of me and my mother around Richardson Park, 
And he was pointing out areas like, you know, do you think that'll work for planting mangroves? Do you think that'll work? Do you think that'll work? And eventually we found a little spot there. We think it'll be a good spot to grow the mangroves. They'll be protected. They'll, they'll probably grow just fine. You know, mm -hmm. we're not too worried about them. They're resilient. Yeah, they're, they're tough bastards. Mm -hmm. But even after, you know, at this point we had a, a spot picked out, we have like volunteers that are going to be ready to go whenever. Mm -hmm. And we still had to, you know, figure out a date and took a month to, for us to settle on um, this upcoming Thursday, March 25th. Right after, right after school, I'm going to get out of school. I'm going to take some of my friends from Aquinas mm -hmm. and we're going to go over to the park and we're going to start the, the transplant. And I, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think it'll be a great opportunity to sort of uh, get it, get the whole project more out there. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, I think, I think this podcast might've been the reason we were able to finally get a date because after throwing all the, all these dates in the air, uh, yesterday I, I contacted him and I said, you know, I'm going on a community podcast tomorrow. A lot of community members are, you know, listen to it. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to make some sort of announcement. Say, you know, we've finally got this off the ground for like, for real. You know, it's no longer just us picking up trash. We're working with officials. We're doing stuff that'll help. Right. And it, feel, it feels good to have that, you know, that date set. So you feel like because there was going to be some media coverage on it, that it might have helped yeah. actually move it along? Yeah, but definitely. See, see I, I firmly believe that. Um, one of the things that we started is the Coastal Community Network, which is a media company that does nothing but talk about um, how to make our coastal communities better and thrive and to make sure we don't ruin them like we've ruined them here in Fort Lauderdale, oh, Miami. Yeah. And we really believe that media, um, traditional media has failed the state, has failed all coastal communities. One, by not holding our government officials accountable through the media. Um when we had the big sewage spill here last year, almost a year ago, there was this one dude that would show up every time there was a catastrophe. And I didn't know who he was. Like, I knew who the commissioners were. I knew who the mayor was. I knew who the city manager was. I knew who the guy from Parks and Recreation was. But I didn't know who this one guy was. And he seemed to be like the focal point. When I learned out, when I learned who he was, I was floored. It was the PR guy the pr dude the news would show up to the catastrophe they would talk to the pr guy the pr guy would then go back and talk to the commissioner or whoever was going to be on tv they would get their story straight and then the local news would basically tell you what they had planned to tell you yep and it does not surprise me that you feel that the media actually motivated them because media has not held them accountable I mean, think about it. Well, that's what they fear, too. They fear being held accountable. They do fear. Right. And think about that red tide event that happened on the west coast of Florida. Yeah. Was that two years ago, three years ago? I mean, when you have a, a, a catastrophe like that, that should have been world news. That was shuffled underneath the rug um, by the media and by the government. So, I, you know, I believe firmly in that. So now that you've got the date set up, and you have your volunteers set up. Um, is this like a one-time thing or is this project, are you going to look for more places to? We are going to look for more places eventually because we're collecting the propagules directly out of the water. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're going out, we're doing cleanups, we only see two or three propagules, you know? Right. So we're going to get those planted and we're going to try and collect new ones while we can as, as we sort of just go. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we're going to have enough, hopefully by April, May, we'll be able to set up another thing. Gotcha. And of course, 
hopefully because it's the second time we're doing it, we'll get through the process a little quicker. Right. But I'm not totally sure. We could be doing our next one in September if it goes at this rate. Right. But hopefully, you know, it'll be in May. Now, I got a few questions for you. One of the questions I had, because I, I believe that the mangroves are one of the most important things for our waterways here um, in the Tri-County area, simply because we eliminated like 99% of them. Yeah, yeah. And every time we see just a little strip of mangroves, I mean, it could be just 50 feet or 100 feet. When you see the mangroves, you see life, you know, like you were talking about in the Keys. That's where that's, that's where life is. So I spoke to the commissioners here in Fort Lauderdale. I took the mayor out on my boat, and I showed him the last few mangroves that we have left here in Broward County. And I expressed to them that I thought that in order to bring wildlife back, that was going to be a necessity, you know, in order in order to make it happen. And, and I wanted to show them proof. Now, I thought also that planting mangroves was so simple, such a simple process and such a make sense process that there wouldn't be a lot of red tape litigation um, or problems with it. But what I did find out is there's a lot of rules about mangroves, state rules, county rules, and city rules. Were you able to learn what the rules actually are? No, that was never really thus. Did um did you did you know about the rules? No. See see like I grew up on the water here. My parents had a house. When we would see a mangrove shoot pop up on a seawall somewhere, we'd run over and kill it. And the reason you run over to kill it because there's these state rules to tell us how high they would be or had to be and that kind of thing. And the rules were made to preserve mangroves. You know what I mean? But what the rules actually did was exterminate and eliminate mangroves because of the state regulation. Now here in uh, Fort Lauderdale, the only way we're going to get a lot of mangroves back into the system is it if private property owners are allowed to plant them by their seawalls? Yep. And they're allowed to manicure them, whether they're two feet high or six feet high or 10 feet high. I believe that if somebody here in the Tri-County area plants their own mangroves, they should be able to manicure them any way they want. I entirely agree with you. I feel like there's a huge difference between some boater that just doesn't know what they're doing and they destroy some mangrove or whatever. That's obviously like, you know, that was a natural growing thing. That's something that should be addressed differently than someone who takes the own, their own initiative right. to plant mangroves and to let them grow out. Because even if they're trimming those mangroves down, however often, them simply being there is always going to be a net benefit, no matter what the homeowner does to them or whatever. Right. And considering there's no more to kill. Yeah. Yeah. The rule doesn't apply here anymore. Yep. You know what I mean? And it's typical government bullshit where... You know, they make up a whole bunch of laws and rules, and then they just leave them on the books, and basically they use it as a reason to tell you no. Yeah, and their laws, too, they're always catch-all. They never account for those individual circumstances, like homeowners having mangroves, because that's a whole different bill they have to draft up. It is. It is. And I don't know. Maybe it's going to be guys like you. Um, They're going to have to push the issue and teach people what they can and can't do because it's very confusing and kind of like how you wanted to contact the city to find out if you could plant these mangroves and areas you could plant these mangroves. If you called the city and asked for the rules, do you think they'd even know? Probably not. Yeah. I don't think the, I don't think they know the, the rules um, here in the city. Of no, these people, either. they don't read their own legislation. Yeah. You know? Now, <laughs> now going, going forward, I mean, what, what, what's your ultimate goal with mangrove life? 
Um, I couldn't really say there's a realistic end goal when the, when the objective is to make the env- the local environment here, the local wildlife here, as good as possible. You know, we want to remove as much trash as possible from the waterways. We want to plant as many mangroves as we can. I and I can't really give you a quantitative number of the objective because when mangroves have reached the point where they, they have, there's so many more to plant. We just need to keep going. Right. And even with trash, you know, in six months, it may be like 800 pounds of trash removed in six months isn't a ton, but like these are high school kids going out on paddle boards. Right. I've, I've had people volunteer that have never paddle boarded before. We spent the whole time just trying to teach them so that they could come back again right. at a different time. Right. Well, I think the most valuable thing that's going to come out of out of what, what you guys are doing is kids your age need to understand and they need to be aware of how the ecosystems work, what what's good, what's bad, and to educate other people um, that come to Florida. One of the biggest problems we're going to have going forward is our growth rate is so friggin' crazy, especially in coastal communities. We get New Yorkers come down here, you know, um, people all through the Midwest, people from California. There isn't, the news has not been on more than 10 minutes without telling people to come to Florida in the last six months. So as they come here, Florida needs to take the initiative to educate these people on exactly how the ecosystems work. Yeah. And what you're saying about New York cities, New York cities too, we're like, we're bringing in so many people. This new, in, in my city, Wilton Manor, is a new zoning ordinance. They want 100 people per acre. Like, that's literally like New York City levels of skyscrapers they'd have to build. Yeah, and I think that's where the 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 government, the local government's mind is, not only in Wilton Manor, but here in Fort Lauderdale. Because when you read these local publications, that's what they talk about. They're talking about making this the New York City of the South. Do we really want it to be the New York City of the South? You know, did no. people did people flood to the state for it to be New York City? No, they flood to the state for what? For the water. I don't get it. But then again, there's not much that makes sense in government as a whole. Yeah. So I don't know why in the world guys like you and I would think that it would make sense here. Yeah. You know? Yep. It's just it's just more economically efficient for them to know, you know, make these huge cities that are gonna have one percent gains long term. You know, I have I have family up in New York. I've been to New York City and I've been to more rural upstate New York. Right. And th- those like small upstate communities, they're so wonderful. Like Utica, New York, that's where I was like born. I was born in Albany, but like sort of lived in Utica for the year. And that's where my family more is. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It's like some of the last cool green space that I can think of in this country. There's as far as I can see, sometimes there's like trees and hills and stuff. And that's just totally lost here. And, you know, they've, those people there resisted like any move to change from that. They like it how it is. Right. I, I think it was a Target opened up up there and it, it went out of business because people preferred their local retailers and they preferred, you know, how things were. <laughs> yeah, not the case here in South Florida. I don't know. I think we're probably the, I mean, every major company like a Target or a Walmart or whatever, just open it up down here as fast as possible. I really don't think that we're going to be able to change the growth rate. I don't think that we're not going to end up developing, but I do believe we can develop better. Oh, yeah. It's it's definitely like an inevitability at this point. We just need to handle it better. You're totally right. Yeah. Because like, for instance, destroying all the natural coastline and filling in with concrete seawalls. Okay. We did that in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, you know, but we're going to do the whole state like that as we develop. 
Are we just going to ruin every single bit of natural shoreline in order to, to be able to live? One, we don't have to. One, that's not a major, you know, feat um, not to do it. We can develop. We can handle the people. But we have to change the way we ha we have to do it in harmony with the ecosystem. And mangroves is the number one apparent um, method. Well, it's just it's just when you go to any place but Broward and Dade County, you see mangroves. Yeah. If the water's there, the mangroves are there. This is the only place we've eliminated all of them. Yep. You know, I took the uh, the the mare out on the boat, and I went right to the middle of the intercoastal, right downtown. And I asked him to look around. And I said, does anything, does anything stick out to you? Does it, do you notice anything when you look from right to left anywhere? And he was like, well, what, what are you getting at? And I said, there isn't one tree left. Not one tree left on the intercoastal here in, uh, in Broward County. And the mayor who came from Connecticut in the 80s, not that he didn't necessarily care or whatever, but it just didn't go through his mind, you know, that, that, that the trees weren't there. It, it wasn't even a thought in the back of his head. No, not even. Not even. And he's running the city. And he was a commissioner here for years and years and years. They don't know. They don't understand it. Have you been to Costa Rica? No. Have you ever heard the uh, nature pitch that they have in Costa, in Costa Rica? I'm not familiar with it. All right. So you, you, you get off the plane there, right? And, you know, it doesn't matter. You get in the lot of shuttles and taxis and things like that. And they start driving you to wherever you're going, right? And the natural pitch that comes out of their mouth is they tell you about their government. They tell you about their country. And they tell you about how they've naturally preserved as much as they possibly can. They're huge on preservation there. Right. But everybody, you get off the plane there and they talk to you about preservation. Now, they've been able to grow. They've been able to build an economy. And they've been able to preserve their natural habitats. It, it really is. It's a perfect example of like a water-oriented community that has done a terrific job developing economically. And they've done a terrific job at not doing it at the expense of their environment. Exactly. And we need to recognize and teach their success here in the state of Florida and all these other coastal communities, because it's not just Florida. You know, we got a huge fan base up in the Charleston area and they're having the same exact issues we're having. Their growth rate is absolutely, you know, phenomenal. Um, their infrastructure systems are failing. Sewage is getting in the water and their natural coastlines are diminishing fast. And, you know, we can relate. It's, it's the same exact thing. They just happen to be in the Carolinas and we're, and we're here. So hopefully guys like yourself in your generation, because it's going to take that long for it to work. It's going to be your generation. You know, they, they can, they can turn this thing around. Now talk to me a little bit about that. What do you see from the kids, your, your age group in high school? Is this, are you, are you like a major minority? Are you more of a majority? Or are you somewhere in the middle? Like, how, do, how does it feel? It's really, it's an interesting dynamic. It really is. Because our school has like three, like, you know, marine biology clubs, the eco clubs, stuff like that. Uh -huh. And they're, they're popular clubs. I think marine biology is like the most popular club at the school. So kids are at least taking some initiative. So there is at least some consciousness about all the 
environmental issues we're facing. I'm, I'm personally just worried that, you know, the kids are doing that because this club's already big. My friends are already in it. So, you know, I'll just head to a meeting. Right. And I'm worried too, because as some people take a more genuine approach to environmentalism, Mm -hmm. as other people are willing to hop aboard for like taking some credit for it. When in reality, they're not doing anything. Right. Right. Now, have you been involved in any other the nonprofits out there or paid attention to what they're doing? Um, I, st- I started a Surfrider Foundation chapter at my old middle school. But other than that, my involvement with environmental non-for-profits has been sort of limited. Well, you're pretty young, I would imagine. Yeah. So, but the Surfrider Foundation is, I think, one of the better one of the better foundations out great. there. Yeah, they really do a lot of work, and um, they're fairly focused. And that's um, the reason I bring that up is because you have re- some really good ones. You know, like the the one in the fishing world, um, Captains for Clean Waters is a really good one. You know what I mean? The um, the one that I like that that um, focuses more on infrastructure and sewage is the American Water Security Project. I have heard of them. Yeah. Very, very good people. Yeah, they're, and, they're great. And efficient. When we had the big issue here um, with the sewage spill, they were down here within weeks sitting in front of the mayor's office and going over um, you know, the whole problems that we were having with the, with the sewage stuff. So I really like the American Water Security Project. But then there's a lot of foundations out there, like you said, um, act like they're doing a lot more than they are um, carrying the narrative, but not carrying the load. Yeah. And it's a little frustrating. And like I was talking about the media covering um, environmental issues, the nonprofits enjoy not being covered by media. And when you're not being covered by any type of media, you basically, there's no accountability because there's no accountability you can become very inefficient. I'm finding that people are spending millions and millions of dollars and basically just pissing it away through these foundations that have a good name, have a good mission statement, but really don't do a whole hell of a lot. Yep. You know, and when I see a grassroots new organization with younger people, I'm more attracted to that type of organization than I am these big organizations. Why? Because I feel that the only way to get the environment back on the right track is going to be take it one little piece at a time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was killed with a thousand cuts. Well, you have to mend one cut at a time. Yeah. And the mangrove life in Wilton Manors is a great start. And I just want to thank you for, um, putting forth your energy. Thank you. Really. It it means a ton to even be on here and be able to talk about it, you know? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because the podcast, the thing I love about podcasts, I can talk about anything I want. Yeah. And then I, I, I interviewed all these different people and I, I learned all these different things, but you realize through the people that are listening to your podcast, if you're not talking about something that's very important to you, they're not going to take interest. They don't care to listen. Yeah. So I'm just like no holds barred at this point. I just want, I want to talk to, I want to talk about what I want to talk about. And if people want to listen to what I want to talk about, then I'm freaking no, I'm, you know, being somewhat successful. Yeah. That's, that's the approach you have to take. You're just going to enjoy life more. Right. Right. Yeah. You have to enjoy, you have to enjoy what you do. 
What about sports or anything like that? Are you doing anything besides uh, Nine Grove Life? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot. I don't, I didn't do any of the sports at Aquinas. Right. I played like rec league soccer for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it really, but it, the, the soccer team at Aquinas, it's a huge thing. It takes up a ton of time. So I, I opted to do a few other things. I joined the school marching band. Oh, nice. I, I genuinely, I love, love music. My dad was a drummer his whole life and I was a drummer my whole life. So I'm a snare, I'm a snare drum in the marching band and th- those marching band guys, they're amazing. No, I love the band. Yeah. The, some of my most frequent volunteers are f- people I met in marching band. They're great people. I learned a whole lot musically in the very short time I was there. I was still, still with them, but you know, it's only been like a year and a half. Right. Right. That's and, cool. and two, those are the kids that are genuine. Those marching band kids, right. they're, they're there because they want to play music and that carries over to the, the service work. Those are the type of people that I know when they're coming over to my house to do a cleanup. They're there because they care, you know? Yeah. yeah I think, well, I think to be in a marching band, um, you know, you have to be a driven person. It's not an easy thing to do. It's a big commitment and to be able to enjoy it like you guys are doing, which is the, you know, I mean, that's the key to it. That's the key to yeah. it. Yeah. I played a lot of sports when I was at, not a lot of sports, but I played football and track when I was at St. Thomas and it consumed me. Oh yeah. And I enjoyed it. But I loved the band. I loved the band. I loved all the bands. The Ely band was unbelievable when we were in high school. I don't know if they're still a big band now, but man, they were good. And I went to Fort Lauderdale High School that had a big band. I went there my freshman and uh, sophomore year. And I was always friendly with the kids in the band. As a matter of fact, one of the kids um, that we're on Facebook now, he's like an Elton John uh cover guy yeah. on cruise ships or whatever. But anyway, his name is Jeff Nyman and he's still going. Yeah. Why? Because he loves music. Yep. They're driven by nothing more than their passion. Like <laughs> genuinely great people all, all, all up and down the board. So what's your take on um, Yacht Rock? I like it. It's nice. Right. A lot of people are into Yacht Rock, but people get into Yacht Rock like, uh, how do you say it? If they go to the beach, where they get on the boat, yeah. Then the yacht rock starts, and then, you know they get in their car and they they're every every other back to their normal stuff. But yeah, yeah the yacht rock comes out when they're uh, doing their salt life yeah. stuff. Yeah, the yacht rock is actually my mom's car music. She she has that Sirius XM radio, and her three stations are like yacht rock, <laughs> uh, the Howard Stern show, and, nice. and like like the eighties on eight. You know. Yeah. Well, we were lucky growing up in the 80s. We had freaking, yeah. in my opinion, the best music. We had the, that was the beginning of rap. And rap, I liked rap at the beginning. I think rap peaked with the Beastie Boys. I love the Beastie Boys. Yeah, the Beastie Boys. Did you know that the Beastie Boys are pretty much the first guys Yeah. in rap music? I got the Beastie Boys album called Cookie Puss in 1979. And a lot of people think that, um, Rap music was, um, you know, an African-American thing. And at the beginning, it really wasn't. It was kind of, it was a New York City thing. But you had a lot of Jewish kids, a lot of Puerto Rican kids. Yeah. And, you know, it was like a mix. It was more regional it, than like racially divided. Right. It was, it wasn't, a, it, it wasn't a black thing. It was, it was, it was, hip, it was hip hop at its infancy. And it was not, you know, driven by one. Mm-hmm. It was a city thing. It was city music. That was kind of it. Yeah. Uh, I admit, I really wish I grew up in an era with city scenes of music more. That's, that was like, that's such a cool thing to me. I'll, I'll look all through like YouTube looking for like 
big bands when they were tiny, like those live performances to 10 people. Right. Those are my favorite things. Right. I went to, I went to, I went to school at the university of Connecticut and then I worked in Boston for about three years. And one of the things that I was able to take advantage of living in Boston was, um, was music. There was more bands and stuff oh, yeah. in, you know, that would go to this in the city compared to back then, you know, we were a beach town. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Grover Washington and stuff, they weren't coming here. But they were playing in Boston like every weekend, you know, and there was always somebody to go see. So I went to everything. I mean, the whole time I was there and um, got to see, you know, pretty much anything I wanted. But the best thing that I ever did, I went to see the Grateful Dead in um, Boston Garden. Boston Garden. Okay, so I lived right maybe 10 blocks from the garden. Pretty cool. And, and the Grateful Dead sold out five nights in a row. And then somehow or another got additional seven nights, which they sold out those two. And uh, so the Deadheads took over Boston. And I wasn't much of a hippie type or anything, but I was just like, wow, this is pretty insane. I said, I'm going to go see these guys. And I went to see the Grateful Dead in Boston Garden. And um, I saw them two or three times after that. I wasn't like a big time Deadhead or anything. But I couldn't imagine being where I am now without being able to say that I got to see the Grateful Dead and listen to the Grateful Dead and enjoy the Grateful Dead. If I wasn't in Boston, that never would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> now you guys get pretty good down here in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Yeah. We get some good performances every once in a while. What are you What are you into? What's your modern day? Um, my modern day is sort of limited, like more alt rock music. Yeah. My, my real big genre is like <laughs> 90s alternative. 90s 2000s i really really love like foo fighters and stuff right. I, I have like the entire nirvana discography on cd yeah. a, a ton of green day um that was a good that was a good era yeah very good era yeah even early radiohead you know i wish i was more familiar oh like yeah oh, like okay computer uh kid a <laughs> okay well hopefully the people in the audience understand what you're talking about i, ho- I hope someone does <laughs> I'll I'll feel old if no one does. <laughs> Dude, you'll feel old soon enough. Jonah, thanks for being in the um, Lunker Dog Studios. All the luck in the world with Mangrove Life. And I want to know how it goes next week. Yeah. Or two weeks. Two weeks, right? Next week. Next week, yeah. Yeah, I want to know how it goes next week. And I want to find out um, how your relationship works with the city of Will Manors more than anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'll let you know. Well, think about this. If you can make if you can make a relationship with the city of Wilton Manors, maybe we can teach other people to duplicate in the other cities. Be wonderful. It would be. Well, you know, we do these podcasts and they get all these different environmental experts on here. And I always ask the same question because they're doing it full time. You know, I'm fishing full time and I I do what I can, you know, um part time for the environment. But you know, I asked them, I say, what can an everyday guy like me or you do? And they, every time they say this, two things. They said, one, make a relationship with your local officials. Two, get as many people as you can to make relationships with your, with your officials and to come up with goals, small goals that you can achieve, which you guys have done in uh, the city of Wilton Manor. So congratulations. And um, maybe we'll have you back. You can. I'd tell, love to be back. You, yeah, maybe you can tell us about uh, how it went with the city and if you're going to be able to grow. Yeah. 
that start sounding funny there at the end? I don't know. Anyway, Jonah, great to have you on the Real Guy Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And before, before we end, because she'll kill me if I don't, I want to give the absolute biggest thank you I can give to my mom. She's been the most influential person in my life, and she's been such a huge help with this. You know, I want to give her all the credit in the world. She deserves it. Dude, that's awesome. I'm going to edit that and put that at the beginning of the podcast. I want everybody to hear that. Yeah. Thanks, Joan. I really appreciate it. You're getting me choked up over here. <laughs>